0: And if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. The the words should be available in your bulletin. They'll also be displayed in a moment on the wall. But this morning, if you're joining us, we are concluding 10 weeks of a series which we have somewhat playfully called Fixing Broken Things, seeking to have a robust worldview of God's redemption in us and through us. Simply put, that God has not saved us and then left us to wallow around in sin and misery. Know that justifying grace of God also brings power for change. And so we're hearing of the gospel in the way of sanctification. That God is serious about transforming His people, moving us on to maturity in a way that we prayed for a few minutes ago. And so this morning we come to the last of of ten different things we've talked about. We've talked about redeeming broken worship, redeeming broken work, redeeming broken relationships. Whether those are marital relationships, family relationships, friendships. And then the last two weeks, we talked about redeeming broken appetites. Whether for food or for drink. Or as you saw last week or heard last week perhaps, redeeming broken sexual appetites. Whew, glad to have those hard ones behind us. But we have another hard one and challenging one to conclude with. And this really could have been the introduction to, to all of it. And perhaps it should have been. But I'll conclude with this this morning, which is redeeming our broken thinking. That every thought should be captive to the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. To the truth that God has given us in His Word. And so we believe, as we approach this subject for this last morning in the series, that God really does work by His Word and by His Holy Spirit to change people. And so it's really not okay for any of us, whether young or old, to say, well, I am who I am. I've just always been this way. I'm always going to be this way. I come from a long line of people that were this way. And so what is, is the Christian has a robust view of redemption and change. And at the heart of that is the way that we think about ourselves and the world in which we live. And so this morning, our passage from 2 Corinthians 10, jumping that far into a book, well, there's going to be context there that you need to be familiar with. So listen and pay attention to what we'll call the pastoral tone of Paul. You're going to hear a sternness against worldliness. And when we say pastoral tone, a lot of times um, we think, oh, shoulder-squeezing, warm pastoral tone. Sometimes it is that. But sometimes it's a a tweak of the nose, right? So you're going to hear a sternness in these words of the Apostle Paul for the good of his people. Because Paul has, and here's the important context, Paul has a distinction between the church And the world. He says that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And that is because the church has a unique God given identity and purpose, a mission in the world as God's worshipers, as God's disciples, as God's evangelists of the Lord Jesus. And as the church, we have values and principles that shape us. The living of our lives as individuals and as families. And as the church, we have a view of life and of the world from the perspective of Holy Scripture. And simply put, that is what we've called a biblical world and life view. And because we have all those things that influence and shape us, our thinking matters to God. So give your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 2 to 5. Paul says, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Let's pray that God would help us understand his holy word. Lord, would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to your word and what you would have to shape us this morning. Lord, that we might be a people whose every breath, whose every thought is to praise and honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to say to you, picture in your mind the thinker, what would you picture? So in my study, um, I have this little imitation fake bronze statue of Rodin's The Thinker, right? You know what this is? I don't have a picture display for you here. It may be on your handout. I think I put it on the handout if you got a handout. But it is quite simply... The image of a male figure sitting on a rock, seen with himself leaning over, his right elbow placed on his left thigh, holding the weight of his chin, and he is said to be what? In deep thought. And it is the picture, really, of man as a thinking person. And I know what the women are thinking men are not thinking persons, right? (laughs) Well, we are. We're supposed to be. We're supposed to be deep-thinking people, and that is what homo sapien actually means, the wise man or the thinking man. And it is a good picture. It is a good image to remind us that our thinking really does matter to God. God is and always has been concerned with how His people think. Okay? So three points about that this morning. If you've been with us, you can already tell me what my points are. It's that we were created for something. We've now fallen from that something. But there is hope for redemption and renewal of that thing. And sure enough, those are our three points again this morning. So first, creation. God created human beings as the thinking people. Homo sapiens. Genesis 1 and 2, which we have returned to week and week again. I won't reread what we have heard so many times. But there in Genesis 1 and 2, we are given this pattern of understanding of ourselves and of God and of the world. And quite simply, you could say we're given there a creator, creature, Distinction that they are separate. We cannot confuse ourselves as the creator. We cannot confuse ourselves as the one who rewrite blueprints. As we said last week, we don't get to change the rules. There is a creator-creature distinction. God is God. We are not. And from the very beginning, He called man to rule as a vicegerent or as a vice-regent, that is, think vice-president. Not as a president, but as a vice-president. And so God gave man the earth and told him to rule and how he was to represent God in the earth. And in that way, the right order of thinking is that God is creator, we are creatures, and now he's given us an earth and all of life, all of God's garden, all of God's gifts, we're called to rule it according to His rules, not our own. But somehow everything goes wrong, and you know this. Genesis chapter 3, that pattern and design is broken by man's sin, and it all started with a hiss. I couldn't help but think of that um, 70s song from Hot Chocolate. It started with a kiss, Um, but it all started with a hiss, and that is what? the lie of Satan in the garden, to disbelieve God's Word. And he tempted the man, he tempted the woman to not believe the promises of God, to not believe the blueprint for life that God had given them. And so it all started with the hiss of a serpent and man falling into sin to rebellion against God, which did what? Like with all things, now even our thinking is distorted by sin. And it has resulted in chaos and confusion and disorder. Even our thinking is broken. We see glimpses of this throughout Scripture, but nowhere is it clearer than in Romans chapter 1 where we see a picture of the ruined nature of man's thinking. Give your attention. This is somewhat of a long reading. But these are excerpts from Romans chapter 1. And listen to what the Lord is saying has happened because of sin to the thoughts of man, to our ability to interpret his world and his word. There we're told, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And here it is. For although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds. And animals and reptiles. And then verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil, they disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Wow, that is strong speech. And that is the Apostle Paul's divinely inspired communication to the church for all history to understand the ruin of sin, what it has done not to some people, but to all people who descend from Adam and from Eve. And there we see a picture of our own hearts, of who we are outside of faith in Jesus, and of everybody else outside the doors of this church this morning. Man is in a condition of ruin. And Paul says it all starts with bad thinking. Getting the order, the distinction of creator and creation. And reversing those elements and making ourselves to be God. And seeking to change the rules and the blueprints that God has given creation. That is a picture of broken thinking. It's a picture of ruin. Of feudal thinking and darkened hearts of unwise fools practicing idolatry, he says. It is a picture of full-blown depravity. Now, a word about depravity and the way our thinking is broken. This isn't so clear on the outline, but I want it to be clear verbally. There are two ways, at least two ways, that our broken thinking can manifest itself. And the first, broken thinking, is most obvious when it rages against God with hostility, the way that Romans 1 indicates. But listen, and we'll see at the end of the service, it is just as broken. It is just as wicked. It is just as ruined. Not when it rages against God, but when it's apathetic, shoulder-shrugging towards God's Word and His authority. We're going to conclude with that, but for first, broken thinking is most evident when it rages against God and His Word. Some of you may know the name of Voltaire. Voltaire was a French philosopher in the 1700s who was extremely hostile to Christianity. He raged against Christianity. He had voluminous writings where he wrote against the church. He wrote against the Bible. He wrote against everything that we stand for this morning that you have seen in our liturgy and in our worship. These are a few quotations from Voltaire, this this obvious rage of his broken thinking against the God who created him. He said this. In 1764, he wrote, The Bible, that is what fools have written, what imbeciles commend, what rogues teach and make their young children memorize by heart. He says, We are now living in the twilight of Christianity. Then he wrote, Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd, and bloodiest religion that has ever infected the world. He says, My one regret in dying is that I cannot aid you in this noble enterprise of extirpating the world of this infamous superstition. This is what he says of our faith and of our Savior. And then it says that Voltaire ended every letter that he wrote to his friends with the French phrase that means crush the infamy, the Christian religion. That's how he signed his letters. It's pretty hostile. That's a rage against God. It's what Scripture would say is broken thinking. One more quote. At the end of his life, he said this. One hundred years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. Which is to say, a hundred years from my death, the Bible will be forgotten. Nobody will even know what the Bible is. Okay, so that's pretty obvious rage and hostility by Voltaire. That is what depravity of mind and of thinking looks like. There's one more thing from Voltaire. But before we do that, I want you to hear from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 that anticipates such hostility to God and to His anointed. Psalm 2 that says this. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? On Zion, my holy mountain. Psalm 2, you know, ultimately speaks of the Lord Jesus as king. I hope that you know that. All of the Psalms anticipate the person and the work of Jesus and are ultimately fulfilled by Him. But we're told all the way back in Psalm 2 that the world will curl up its fist to God in anger and hatred of Him. The the world will say, we want his shackles off of us. We want the Lord's chains off of us. All he does is oppress us and burden us. Voltaire would say, all that the Lord does is squash good thinking with bad thinking. And Psalm 2 anticipates that. And then you have Voltaire as one of countless examples of such hostility to God. But let me tell you the second half of the Voltaire story. Remember he said that a hundred years after my death... The Bible will be forgotten. Well, here's a little story from the life of Voltaire. Um, within the last 20 years, this story began to be questioned. Some thought that this was a myth and that it wasn't true. But in my reading this week, I came across more recent study than that that has found in historical journals evidence that the story is in fact true. And here's the story. So Voltaire, who said, A hundred years from now and the Bible will be forgotten. 58 years after his death, his home was purchased by someone else and it became the repository for the Geneva Bible Society and housed all of the evangelical tracts and Bibles that would contribute to ministry in that region and throughout the world. And more than that, his printing press in his home which he used to write those books, all that voluminous, hostile writings. They then used that in the printing of those evangelical tracts. And so Psalm 2, the Lord sits on high and laughs at the rage against his wisdom, his beauty, and his perfection. Our thinking matters to God We live in a depraved world, and outside of Christ, we are just as lost and just as depraved and just as hostile in our hearts and minds as Voltaire. But the Lord does a work in His people. He woos and wins and softens hardened hearts, and He can do anything to anyone. No one is outside of His reach. And this leads us to the hope of redemption our broken thinking, our imperfect thinking. What, what hope is there for us? Maybe we're not so raged in anger against God, but maybe we're apathetic and not so serious about how God engages our everyday life and everyday breath and everyday action. And that leads us to our primary text that we already heard from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 2 through 5, where God says He reorders that disordered thinking of the world. And He puts everything back as it should be with the creator-creature distinction. That God is God, that we are not. And because we live in a world of order that's disordered by sin, we are the agents of redemption that seek to reestablish order, that call darkness darkness and light light. And because that's true, every thought matters. And every thought, Paul says, is to be taken captive and made obedient to Jesus Christ. That is to truth to the truth of who God is and who the Savior is. You've heard it said there are no maverick molecules in God's world. Well, there are to be no maverick thoughts within the church. Everything submits to the supremacy of Christ, the perfection of Christ, to the truth of His Word and of His will. And when we seek to live outside of that, we're in chaos. We're in disorder. Things are redefined, as we said last week. There are no rules. There is no order. Everything is chaos. And what always happens when we get away from God's order and His blueprints, you can bank on it. Humanity will disintegrate. The gospel seeks to reintegrate humanity. But sin is always disintegrating us. We crumble because of sin. And our thinking lies at the very heart of it. Every thought is to be captivated by the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. Every one of our thoughts is to become obedient to God's truth, not running away from it, not rebelling against it. And then lastly, not apathetic towards it. Now, this is very, very important. I'm going to close with this because I don't think that we're a church full of hostile, angry people to God's word. Perhaps perhaps it's more true that we tend to be apathetic, shoulder-shrugging, not really engaged or caring. So I want to give you an illustration about what that can lead to. Some of you may recognize the name of Albert Speer, or as he would say, Albert Speer. Born in 1905 in Germany. He was the son of an architect, and he himself would become a very gifted architect. Though he was an apolitical, a non political person, in 1930, he visited, attended a speech offered by Adolf Hitler. He became intoxicated by what he heard from Adolf Hitler, particularly as this architect, through the ears of an architect, heard an image and vision for rebuilding Germany. Apparently, if you're an architect, you get very engaged and interested with this vision of rebuilding and doing things bigger and better and bringing renewal. So he became intoxicated with the thought of playing a part in that. He was asked to use his gifts to create a new, fresh, and inspiring logo for the Nazis. And he did. He revisioned, rebranded, we would say, the swastika and the eagle that accompanied it. And Hitler loved it. He loved the logo. And he then, from that point on, sought to harness Speer. For his own purposes. Speer began what he would later call a friendship with evil. He would become Adolf Hitler's chief architect by title, and he is the one with his gifts who created the bold red Nazi flags, the cathedral of light, the 130 spotlights turned heavenward to create the theater. He created the Colosseums, the pageantry of it all, images of strength, momentum for Hitler to try to communicate that he was strong and powerful. He's the one who choreographed the marching of the stormtroopers. He became a part of Hitler's inner circle, one of Hitler's best friends and confidants. And then after the war, at the Nuremberg trials, he was asked, how could you play a part in this hideous war? And this is what he said. I kept telling myself in the midst of it all that I was just an architect. I'm just an architect. I'm not a soldier. I'm not a general. I'm not killing anyone. I'm, I'm just... An architect. And his thinking was broken. He let his gifts be harnessed for evil. He wouldn't oppose what he knew internally was wrong. And he self-justified, like you and I can do, his version saying, I'm just an architect. I'm not an important person. But his gifts had been harnessed and they were used for evil. Now here's the jolting part, if it's not already been jolting. Speer was raised in a Protestant home. He was raised under Christian influence, Christian thought, like so many of the Nazis were. Raised in Catholic influence and Protestant influence. But there was something broken about their thinking. They would not hold to God's word and truth of of who human beings were. Listen to this quote from Speer. This is after his confession of what he had done. My obsessional fixation was on production and output statistics. Meaning he was just a machine. He just did his job. And it blurred all consideration of and feeling for humanity. An American historian has said of me that I loved machines more than people. And he is not wrong. And there you have it. There's his broken thinking. I'm just an architect. I'm I'm not involved. But he loved the system and building a system more than he loved the human beings whose lives were being crushed by it. And that is as vivid an example of broken thinking that I can imagine. But listen, there's broken thinking in our lives. When we justify, well, I'm not an important person. This little sin doesn't really matter. No one will know. It's just an architect. No, no, no. You're created in the image of God. And there is a work for you to do. And it's the power of sanctification that will allow your gifts to not be harnessed for evil, but for redemption. And you say, well, I'm, I'm, just a, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a dad who works 80 hours a week. I just live in a small neighborhood. I, I live in a small town. That's broken thinking. That's terrible thinking. Healthy, right thinking would say, I'm a miserable sinner. But I am an instrument in the hands of a God who says he can do anything through anyone. And as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord whether in big things or small things. We will be agents of redemption. That Anything that we touch, we want to bring a healthy contribution. So don't call me just an architect. Don't call me just a stay-at-home mom. I'm to be an agent of redemption in a fallen world. And whether that is a, a big thing or a small unseen thing, it matters not. I'll close with this. Edith Schaefer, the wife of Francis Schaefer, was once asked, "Who do you think is the most godly woman in the world?" And the question asker thought she would name some widely known person, somebody who had done significant things, and Edith Schaefer's response was something simple like this. "I don't know who she is." And probably not many people do. But because she's probably living a simple, quiet life, and is busy about the things of God. What a totally unexpected answer, right? Whatever you are, whatever you do, you're to be an agent of redemption. Maybe it's in your home. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's going to be widely known. It matters not. We're to fix broken things. We're to make things better. We're to redeem the ruins. Not by our own power, not by our own might, but certainly not apart from our power. And might, and so may God work in you to redeem the ruins in your own life, in your own household, in your own neighborhood. But don't lie to yourself that you're just an architect. You're an agent of redemption in the hands of the living God. Let's pray together. Lord, would you work such a bold faith in us, a belief not in ourselves... But in your work of redemption, doing something in every one of us, whether young or old. So, Lord, would you bless your people. May we see this call to sanctification. And may your word and spirit work it out in us. We ask and we pray together and for one another. In Jesus' name. Amen.